What you're about to hear is unsupervised. Welcome back to Season 2, Episode 7 of Stanley Cup of Chowder's Unsupervised Podcast. I'm your host, Colin Beswick, joined tonight by Stanley Cup of Chowder editor Jake Reiser. Jake, how you doing? I'm doing good. I'm gearing up for the holiday season. Starting to get cold. Don't know whether it's going to snow, but it's starting to feel like a nice time of year. It is getting a little crazy with uh, getting all the shopping done and everything, but uh, it's nice to be uh, able to spend time with family as well. We're also joined uh, two weeks in a row, lucky listeners, by uh, Stanley Cup of Chowder writer Sean Ferris. Sean, how you doing? I'm doing all right, Colin. How are you? I'm doing good. We got the streak going here. Maybe we'll make it three weeks. We'll see. See what the listeners think. But uh, speaking of the holidays, too, I just want to mention we are we are deviating a little bit from our normal biweekly schedule due to the you know the holidays, Christmas, all that. We didn't want to release an episode. Uh, around Christmas, which would be on our normal schedule, so we're gonna we have this episode now. We'll be back uh, on our normal schedule in two weeks, so and we'll go from there. We do also have a special guest joining us today, which you may or may not have seen already on Twitter or on the site. That'll be a little later on in the episode, uh, so stay tuned for that. But did want to dive in and get some Bruins topics going here tonight. Um, so first on the docket is some perhaps minor roster moves, but. Um, I think still worth talking about the first being that um, Jamel Smith has been waived by the Bruins. And uh, we found out also a little bit earlier that he in fact cleared waivers uh, somewhat surprisingly. A uh, couple things I want to touch on that one, you know, what did you think of his performance in the three games he played here? And two, were you, were you surprised that he cleared waivers? Cause I was personally. I mean, I was I mean- I was pretty surprised that he cleared waivers considering if Dallas claimed him back, they could have him on the, in the AHL, correct? If I understand the yes. CBA. Mm-hmm. So yep. like I was, I thought for sure. And I think I said this when we were kind of initially talking about this uh, in the chowder chat that, you know, if it doesn't work out for the Bruins, they'll wave him. And then I predicted that Dallas would pick him back up because they probably wanted him still in the system, but in the AHL anyway. Um, so I'm surprised that Dallas didn't pick him back up. You know, they've had him in the organization. They liked him enough to have him on the NHL roster for a little bit. You know, why not have him in the AHL? He could possibly get something for the, uh, for the asset. Um, but I mean, it doesn't totally shock me that other teams didn't pick him up. Um, I mean, he just he either hasn't been given the opportunity to prove himself. Like I didn't, he didn't really stick out to me in the three games that he played um, with the Bruins. So he either hasn't been given the opportunity to really um, show what he has at this level or, or, you know, he's kind of, he's kind of an interchangeable asset in my opinion. I'm not sure what, what Jake thinks. Were we all confused by the waiver pickup in the first place? A um, little bit. I yeah. Think. I just, because I think, you know, we're starting to see the depth sort of stand out and return to last year's form a little bit uh, in the last week or two. But before that, it seemed like they had about a hundred, you know, just, just depth guys, like, you know, just another guy is a lot of people use that term, um, you know, between Achari and Corrali and, you know, you know, even cave who I think he's been, he's been pretty good recently, but they had a lot of that type of, you know, force fifth liner, um, you know, Wagner too, for that matter. 
um, in in the bottom of the roster. So them claiming a guy on waivers who sort of fits into that exact same role was a little bit surprising. My take on that, and I think a lot of people shared, is that it was sort of a kick in <clears throat> in the behind, I guess, family friendly version. Um, you know, for the Acharis and the Wagners of the world, um, you know, but he's a waiver claim. I didn't expect that much from him. I mean, in terms of his performance, what did, do you guys think that it, you know, did the trick or, you know, just another guy, basically? It was just another guy. It was pretty unmemorable, to say the least. I'm just shocked that they didn't go with a guy like Trent Frederick, who we thought was doing pretty well during the preseason and give him a shot at the NHL level before making a waiver pickup. Yeah, I mean, there's... Frederick's an interesting one. Um, he's he's been hurt. Um, I believe he's healthy now, but um, that may have played into it getting him back up to to game speed. Um, you know, I I've said it before too, and I don't think that he's you know great by any means. But they have players like Anton Bleed, you know Fitzgerald. They have other players down there that can come in and play at a minimum an energy role. Um, but then again, they didn't didn't cost anything to waive or to pick up Smith on waivers and. As we know, they eventually put him back on waivers today after three games. So, I mean, no harm, no foul. But I was a little bit surprised for sure. I mean, I think he's a good guy to to have in the system now, though. I mean, he, he's he got a decent shot from what I know. And um, he's, like, all right defensively. Um, you know, so he's, like, a decent guy to have in the system. Maybe you pull him up again. You know, he – he doesn't hurt you in the AHL. Um, I mean, I guess I think he has a one-way contract and that I haven't looked at his contract details. So maybe you're paying him an NHL salary, but he'll do well for the team down in Providence. He probably has a lot to offer to some of the young kids that are, that are playing there. Um, Cause he has a lot of experiences himself and um, his brother had quite the experience in the OHL playoffs last year. Um, going through some unfortunate um, racist uh, obstacles, if you will, um, you know. So I, I think I think he's a player of value now, still, and that you could see again. But you know, so it doesn't it doesn't cost them anything. But yeah, I, I mentioned that too when when we saw that he was going on waivers. That if uh, you know Dallas didn't claim him back, and we mentioned that earlier. But if you're not familiar with it, a team that waives a player if that player is then subsequently waived by the team that picked them up off of waivers, the original team can claim their own waivers. And if they, they win the waiver claim, they are then able to send them directly to the AHL where other teams wouldn't be able to. So that's basically what Sean was referring to earlier. Most of you may be aware of that, but um, you know, one of the cool things about, you know, being a part of SB nation and, and generally just hockey Twitter overall is that it's sort of a small community. So a lot of us are, you know, know other writers from different markets. And so I know I talked to a few people who cover the stars and I'm sure Jake and Sean probably did in passing too. And I know Jamel Smith was sort of a fan favorite there, not only with the, you know, the fans, but he seemed to be generally well liked by his teammates. So for me, that was why I was a little surprised that Dallas didn't pick him up, even if it was just to send him right to their own AHL affiliate. But to Sean's point, it's not a bad thing to have him available down in Providence. You know, even if he doesn't play another game, for the Bruins at the NHL level this season, having him around, um, you know, in Providence isn't a bad thing either. They've certainly dealt with the, you know, their fair share of injuries as well. So sort of a, it's really a win-win, I think. Um, 
for his sake, you sort of hope that he gets another chance to play in the NHL, which is the whole the whole purpose of waivers, um, why they're in the CBA. But um, you know, he did his part. He came in, they won, they won the games that he played, and you know, we got healthy scratch. And I think it's only fair to get him down, give him an opportunity to play if he's not going to play up here. I mean, you're right that there's no harm to it. He just he becomes another one of the young guys, but he has a little more NHL experience than that. I was shocked to figure out he's only 24, turning 25 at the end of the season. So the fact that he has some NHL experience behind him, even if it's sitting on the bench or just being at that level with the guys, learning from coaches at that level, it makes a huge difference to guys like Frederick, uh, like Ryan Fitzgerald, um, guys who will go down and go back up like JFK, like Lausanne, who can help communicate skills like that to some guys who might want another shot at the NHL. Um, it it really is a win win situation here. Yeah, I mean, you know, the I guess if there's a downside is that you know he's a player who is probably NHL caliber, um, and so in his shoes, he probably wants a chance to be playing in the NHL regularly. And that's sort of a tough thing too. Like when he was picked up on waivers, you always get fans who are sort of on like the violent ends of the spectrum. Like, oh, he's going to save the season, or you know, he's terrible. Why did we pick him up? But he's only played eighty games in the NHL in his career. And like I said, he's not, I mean, 24 isn't super young, but it's still young enough that you really don't have a good idea of what a player is, especially if you think that he's not being used or utilized correctly, which, you know, I did hear that from a few people who cover the stars. So there may still be something there that we haven't seen from him, but like I said, he did his job and what they, what they expected out of him and the games he did get in for the Bruins. But, uh, you know, maybe we'll see him again later on this year. If not, you know, all the best to him in Providence. One of the other, uh, you know, minor moves, if you will, that happened is that the Bruins sent down Jeremy Lausanne to Providence. And, you know, we've mentioned him on the podcasts here and there over time, but, you know, I'm curious, you know, if you were evaluating him just at a high level snapshot, what did you think of his time up here? I personally, I'll, I'll say I'm fairly impressed with him. Yeah. I mean, I was impressed. I didn't really, um, I wasn't too highly on high on him going into the preseason, if I remember correctly. But I remember watching him in the preseason, thinking like, you know, he definitely showed uh, quite a bit of potential. And then I think he continued that into the NHL regular season games. I think for his age and experience, he played a pretty good game. I mean, I think um, he he wasn't like a defensive liability out there. Um, he got that goal. It's not like he was he was a great offensive player. You know, he kind of played his role and did it well, and I was pretty impressed with him. It's a really tough situation to be put in when you're basically being called upon to be a stopgap, and you know that as soon as everybody's healthy, you're going back down. But he really took to the task. He showed a lot of confidence at the NHL level. I, I, I agree with the both of you. I was pretty impressed with his level of play. Um, I do think that the biggest win here for him going down means that the team is getting healthy and you're getting guys who you're paying the big bucks to rely on at the NHL level to play again. But for someone who was really called upon to help fill a need for a certain amount of time, I think he did his role extremely well. Yeah, when, when we talked about him in, in, in terms of being impressed and all that too, I think I'll speak for all of us in saying like that's in context. You know, he's obviously didn't come out and, you know, play like a number one defenseman, but as a young kid who really hasn't seen much of the NHL or even really professional hockey, 
you know, the fact that he was able to come in, not make too many egregious mistakes. And even if he wasn't contributing on the score sheet, you know, that's fine. You just want a player to come in and be able to, you know, do his, do his role and not cause, you know, a house fire, so to speak. And he did that, you know, most nights he, he wasn't someone you really noticed on the ice and that's not a bad thing for a young defenseman. So, um, I'm pleasantly surprised with uh, what they got out of him. Um, you know, you know, speaking of defensemen too, you know, the news today and the past couple of days is that some huge, uh, huge Bruins players are coming back both uh, figuratively and literally with Chara on the horizon, Bergeron, Miller, and also your Hovakainen, uh, who I would imagine is probably going to be sent down to Providence once he's fully healthy. Uh, he is exempt from waivers at this point in his career, but, you know, I don't have to, it's obvious to say that the return of Bergeron is huge, but with Chara and and Miller, that that's also going to go a long way to, to solidifying the team. And I did want to talk about special teams too, because Sean, you wrote something earlier today on, on the website, stanleypippachowder.com about the Bruins penalty kill mm-hmm. sort of going through a rough stretch here. And, you know, if you want to give a synopsis of that real quick, just sort of what, what your high level point was. Yeah. So they're 22nd in the league in in terms of penalty killing percentage, right? Like what they snap on, on the screen at the, with the echo store technology penalty killing <laughs> or power play stats or whatever. Um, that brick always uh, pronounces kind of weird to me. Um, but so the 22nd in the league there, but they're doing that with the ninth best penalty kill save percentage. So their goalies are doing, are doing, you know, an above average job, but the Bruins allow the second highest rate of shots on goal. They allow about two every, um, every penalty kill which obviously fluctuates. Like there's some penalty kills that they've allowed. Um, I, I haven't tracked this, but I'm assuming, you know, four or five shots on goal. Um, I don't know for sure, like Toronto, they allowed um, eight shot attempts in like the first penalty kill on the 10th. Um, so they, they've just been allowing a really high rate of shots and the goalies are kind of letting the penalty killers get away with it. Um, but it's just something to keep an eye on is, is you know, they're below average in terms of the penalty kill. And yes, that might be because of Chara and Bergeron being out, of course. And um, Kevin Miller's missed some time. McAvoy missed some time. Like, I think Moore, Moore has been, like, um, one of, like, the main penalty killers. So he's not really a penalty killing guy that you've had really picking up the duties. So yeah, that's uh, definitely out of necessity. He's not someone I think that they would they'd yeah, exactly. have killing. Exactly. So, I mean, it might be something to watch for. You definitely don't want to be giving up a lot of shots because um, goaltending will fluctuate a lot more than your system and and how many shots you give up and how well you can get the puck out of your own zone. Like the systematic things are more stable than the goaltending. So something to look out for if we're going to see, you know, that decrease even more as the goalies kind of come back to earth or or what's going to happen. Yeah, the flip side to that, too, is, you know, with the goalies playing well right now, and as I mentioned a little bit earlier, the Bruins are getting a little bit more of that secondary scoring that they were used to receiving last season. Um, you know, with the, the ship righted, so to speak, in terms of that, if you can clean up some of the special teams and the penalty kill in particular, that would go a long way to getting, you know, some points back on the board for the Bruins. So, you know, I, I say all that because obviously Kevin Miller and Zidane Ochara and Patrice Bergeron all – 
are, are key components of the Bruins penalty kill. So even just getting one, you know, Kevin Miller is probably the first to return and, and Bergeron following that, getting even one of those players back is going to alleviate the burden on a younger player or a less experienced player like Moore. So I think that uh, in the next, you know, two, three, four, five games, we'll start seeing the dividends paid um, from getting those guys back outside of, you know, their obvious impacts in all facets of the game. You know, having Bergeron back obviously is going to slide Krejci down or maybe not, depending on who you ask. Um, wasn't a topic I was actually going to, was going to cover, but, uh, what do you guys think about that now that, now that it comes to mind? Are, are we keeping Bergeron as 1C? Is Krejci staying up there? Does it matter? I mean, I don't think it matters. I think you can use them evenly enough. And I know I hate, and it never really works to have a 1A, 1B type of a situation, but, I mean, if that's gonna way it's gonna go, it's the way it's gonna go. And Gracie's been playing well enough that you should be riding the hot hand as much as Bergeron is. They should rename the Selkie the Bergeron, as we keep joking over the course of every season. So uh, give Gracie the time that he's earned, but recognize that Bergeron is such an important piece. That's the balancing act you have to do. Yeah, I, I, it's Bergeron for me. Like until Bergeron falls off a cliff or. Or whatever. I mean, he's the first line center. If you want to, you know, split up and do pairs, whether it's Pasta and Krejci, or you drop Martian and Krejci, and you keep Pasta with Bergeron, I think that is fine if you want to do it that way. And then you can load up, uh, you know, if you need to put Bergeron and Martian and and Pasta back on the line, you know, to double shift here and there. But it just in general, I think the first line center is Bergeron's until he retires. Frankly. Krejci has been great, and there's no denying that. He's really stepped up. It's been great to see. He's killing a lot of people's narratives, uh, which is always fun to see as well. You know, I think he gets a lot of undue criticism at times. But, um, you know, I think it's Bergeron's um, spot to lose and definitely looking forward to getting him back in the lineup. I know Bruce mentioned that he probably won't play um, tomorrow, which is Thursday for those listening, but he may be back for the weekend's game, so. We'll see how that goes. Um, speaking of centers, too, you know, I think that Colby Cave has done a, a pretty decent job, particularly over the last two or three games. And JFK, too, has sort of found uh, his footing a little bit over that same time span. Um, you know, I don't know if both will continue to, to see playing time or what the plan is, especially if the Bruins acquire a forward. But hypothetically, if you had to choose between JFK or Colby Cave, for the foreseeable future in terms of who stays up in the NHL roster. Do you guys have a preference or do you think it's sort of a wash? Um, I'd probably want JFK to stay up. No. I mean, just because I think it's, it's, if you feel that he can, he can survive up here, um, then I think it's better for his development. In my personal opinion, like, Providence is all good, but then you talk about getting to the next level, and if if you feel he's successful, if he's being successful right now at the NHL level, then you know give him the shot, let him stay up here. It's kind of a weird position to look at as far as the call ups for these two guys. That like Lazan, they're here to just fill a role and be a stopgap. You're not necessarily looking at them because they were just because they were performing well or have been performing well. It's the role of least liability. And as far as consistently being the least liability, I don't disagree with you, Sean. I think JFK should be the one to stay up. 
Cave has had the highest highs, but I think he has the risk to have lower lows than JFK will have over the course of the season. So if you're stuck with someone for the rest of the year, it's got to be JFK for me. It's just interesting. I, I, I would flip that personally. Um, I think JFK has been a little bit better recently, like I mentioned. But uh, when he's off, he's really off, in my opinion. And with Cave, it, Cave is what he is. All due respect to him. He's, he's a depth forward. I don't think that he'll really ever be much more than that if if he continues to play in the NHL. But I think that you know what you're getting with Cave, which is sort of like a, a Claude Julianism, if you will. But um, I think he's been pretty stable. Um, he's reliable, and you know now that he's he's chipped in a little bit offensively, it's even better. Um, you know, things with JFK is he's really really struggled with his faceoff faceoffs here at the NHL level, and that's not the be all end all, but you know it is a you know, a small part of finding success up here. And he's also much more sheltered than Colby Cave has been in terms of his usage. He's seeing um, among the highest on the team, if not the highest on the team, in terms of offensive zone starts, where Cave is seeing a, a pretty generic usage. Um, it, I guess it depends on what you want and what Bruce wants. If you want to keep that kid line together for some secondary scoring, I can understand that, but... I don't think that they've been strong enough that to be a one-faceted line, personally. Um, I still think the team needs to make a, a forward move, but that's probably a, a topic for a whole other whole segment in the podcast episode. But it's just interesting because I know some people are, are really big on JFK. I've been pretty vocal about not, um, at least not at this stage of his career, not really seeing it. Um, although, like I mentioned, he's, he's gotten a little bit stronger as time gone on here, but... Um, I'm still not his biggest advocate, I guess, is what I would say there. But, uh, you know, at least uh, in recent weeks, they've been able to chip in offensively, and they're not really burying the team like they were earlier in the season. So having some stability in the bottom center ranks has been nice for sure. Yeah, I mean, you just hope to see some stability in general. You just hope when this team gets healthy that they stay healthy. They, um, well, I talked about this with the special guest that we'll be having on a little bit later in the podcast, but... They've really been treading water. It's not like they've been underperforming based on what the preseason uh, health looked like or they've been overperforming based on the amount of injuries. They've really just been, like, sitting ducks and just waiting for them to find consistency in health. So I feel like once everybody's healthy, they just need to stay healthy, and then they'll find a groove and hopefully make that push to get into the playoffs. Yeah, knock on wood, health. Health would be nice <laughs> for the team, for the players, for the fans watching. You know, like even selfishly, I've mentioned before on Twitter, you know, Bergeron was on for him a, a career pace. You know, he's in the top 10 in points per game before he got injured. And just selfishly, as someone who's watched his whole career and just really enjoyed what he brings to the game, I was really hoping to see him, you know, get 80 or 85 points, whatever it is. And it's just a bummer that he was hurt. Um, but, you know, I guess flip side to that is he's going to have be fairly rested in terms of the rest of the season, hopefully knock on wood. So if they can keep their health and maybe make a forward uh, move, I think they'll be, be in fairly good shape. Um, you mentioned uh, we have our special guest coming up and uh, sneak peek of that. There's a little bit of a, you know, some goalie talk on there. We've avoided the, the goalie talk over the last couple episodes, which has been nice uh, in terms of who's the starter and, and controversies. Or whatever, but I will say our guest has a little bit different uh, takes than I do, so enjoy that. Um, that's coming up next.
Our guest this week is Dale Arnold from WEEI's Dale and Keefe program from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., as well as from Nesson's pre- and post-game Bruins coverage. We want to thank Dale for coming on this week. He can be followed at Dale E. Arnold on Twitter, and his program can be followed at Dale Keefe WEEI. As someone who hasn't necessarily grown up a Bruins fan, how did you decide kind of what part of the timeline to start at for your book? Well, when they really gave me carte blanche, Triumph Books basically said, you know, you do whatever you want to do. But I wanted to try to keep it a bit more uh, contemporary. I wanted it to be, you know, appealing to the fans of today. It's not that I don't know and love and respect Milt Schmidt and Johnny Busick and, and folks like that, but I really was trying to keep it, you know, a little more contemporary. Now, obviously, you can't write a book about the Bruins and not talk about Bobby Orr, and he was in there. Uh, but for the most part, I tried to keep it to a little closer to current times, kind of the time frame that you're talking about. And was the aim of the book to get towards an audience like that, or what was the kind of goal you had in mind when you were writing it? Uh, I used to have a radio partner named Michael Holly. Uh, and he's a New York Times bestselling author, and uh, he wrote a book called Patriot Rain, where he was allowed by the Patriots to almost be a fly on the wall within the organization. And when Patriot Rain came out, he was telling people stories that none of us had ever heard before because he was the only reader that I know of who got an opportunity to be that close. And I read that book, and I thought, you know what, he – he took me places and told me things I didn't know. And I thought I was a pretty good patriot. So when, when this book came about and when Triumph, you know, asked me to write it, I was trying to do the same thing. Now, I'm not as skilled a writer as Michael Hurley, but I was trying to do the same thing. Bruins fans know their team. They know a lot of stories about their team. So my goal was to try to tell them things that they might not know. And uh, I, I think I was able to do that. I think I was able to come up with some things that maybe I hadn't heard before. That sure is what I was trying to do. What were some stories that maybe you didn't know while you were writing this? Um, in the aftermath of Matt Cook and Mark Savard, I didn't know everything that took place after that. Um, and Sean Thornton was the guy who really fleshed that out for me. Um, you know, I I knew that after Matt Cook hit Mark Savard, Bruins fans were all wondering, how is it that, that nobody on the Bruins, like a Sean Thornton, didn't go out there and thrash Matt Cook? And Sean explains exactly why it happened the way it did. And then he explains what happened when the same two teams a couple of weeks later in Boston and how he handled it then. Um, it was, look, I was around the team at the time, and I didn't know, you know all of these stories. So, that was one of the things I learned, um, you know, little individual stories that guys told guys like, you know, Terry O'Reilly talking about breaking into a car at the Hartford civic center because he had to get out of the building and explaining why and what he was trying to do. And, uh, as I said, those were kind of the inside types of stories that I wanted to be able to bring to the reader and, and just tell them things they didn't know. Was that something you were kind of considering when you were choosing the people who you were going to talk to primarily for this book as well, kind of uncovering stories that either you didn't know or that the fan base might not know now? Well, I, I probably was concerned about, you know, who who did I want to talk to? And, and I, I will say this. I didn't ask a single person 
if I could talk to them for this book who said no. Not a single person. Um, you know, and I knew I wanted to talk to Patrice Bergeron and Zidane Chara, And, you know, there were certain guys. I, I wrote a chapter in the book, you know, about tough guys. Because I, I have a real admiration for tough guys in hockey and how they make a living. And, you know, every one of those guys that I talked to, P.J. Stock and Thornton and others, they were all willing to, to talk to me about it. And then as I was writing the book, and I would talk to guys, and there was this common theme where I, I swear I had like five guys in a row say, you can't write this book unless you talk to Andrew Ferentz. Now, I never would have thought of Andrew Ferentz as a guy I had to speak to, but I literally had five guys in a row tell me, you got to talk to Andy. I reached out to him, told him what I was doing. We spent like two hours on the phone. They were exactly. I couldn't write this book without talking to him. And, and he was a big part of, of what I put in there. So then what was the time like, like for writing this? How quickly did all of these people kind of come together to collaborate and help you get this all together? I started reaching out to people in March of 2017. Um, the book was 80,000 words. I had a deadline of January 1st, 2018. I had to have the the complete manuscript in on January 1st. So I started in March, basically talked to people, wrote for nine months, um, you know, kept writing as I was going along, handed it in on January 1st, and, and it was done. That was that was it. So then where does Matt Kalman come into the project with everything? Well, Triumph does have these this series. Um, and, you know, they do these for other organizations, and they, they've got a lot of different books, different sports, and what they generally do is they have somebody, let's say me, and then you work with a writer and you basically talk to the writer. He tapes a whole bunch of stuff, you know, and then he goes and writes the book. But I had always wanted to write a book. It had always been a goal of mine. And I told Triumph and I told Matt when we began the project, I was going to write this thing because I, I really wanted to write a book. And they were willing to let me try. Uh, I wrote every word that you see, but I would write a chapter. I would submit it to Matt, kind of edit it and go through it and make suggestions. You know, maybe you need to put a little more detail in about this. Or maybe you need to write a little bit more about that. And I would always take those suggestions and act on them. <clears throat> and then, you know, his part ended up being more editor than, than co-writer. That's interesting. As someone who... Um you guys have such an interesting relationship in, within the Boston sports media world. I think that's really cool. You guys were able to find almost a different working relationship than I'm sure what you guys have otherwise. Yeah, it's funny because now uh, Matt actually works for the entity that I work for. You know, I, I do a talk show on WEI, and he now writes about the Bruins for WEI.com. But at the time we started this this project, uh, we hadn't been co-workers, and you know, we, we knew each other because – if you cover the Bruins, you kind of know everybody who covers the Bruins. But, you know, we obviously got to know each other a lot more over the process of finishing the book. So I want to get a little bit more into your background um, throughout your entire career and upbringing. Did you ever think you'd get the chance to write a book? No, I, I'd always wanted to. I, I'm, I'm a voracious reader. I read every single day. Um, and, you know, I had always had it, the idea in the back of my head that, you know, I'd, I'd like to write a book. I still have an idea in the back of my head. I'd like to write a fiction book someday. Uh, but, you know, when Triumph 
reached out to me out of the blue and just said, hey, you know, we'd like you to write a book about the Bruins. I didn't even ask any questions. I just said yes. I didn't ask about how much or what do you need. I just said yes, I'll do it. And uh, I, you know, I, I always had it as kind of a a bucket list thing, and it ended up being as much fun as I had hoped it would be. I I loved the process of researching it. I loved the process of writing it. Uh, I still get such a charge out of walking into a Barnes and Noble and seeing my book on the shelf and. Uh, and going to some of these book signings and, and meeting with Bruins fans, it's just a blast. That's amazing. Um, both of my parents have each respectively authored books, and I remember their faces as the first shipment of books would come in and they'd open up the package on the front door. It's just something that's remarkable. I had that exact experience that your parents had when the box showed up here, and it was probably about six weeks before it was it was out in the public. And, and I, I mean, I got so excited opening the box. And then when I opened it and saw the books sitting inside, I can't even describe the feeling. And I'm sure your parents had the same feeling. It's like, oh, my God, here it is. It's, it's actually real. Absolutely. It was, it was marvelous just kind of watching their faces and flipping through the book and going, wow, it's a physical product. It's in my hands. Yeah. Um, you've certainly had quite an experience getting to where you are between – uh, Bodwin and your uh, time under Doc Emmerich all the way up to EEI and Nesson and today. What are some lessons that you think our listeners and our readers over at Stanley Cup of Chatter could take to heart if they want to break into the industry? Well, it starts, as you've said, and, and I appreciate the fact that you read the book, you know, it started that my first mentor at the minor league level was Doc Emmerich. And, and the, the greatest lesson I learned from Doc was preparation. I have never seen anybody prepare more, prepare better than Doc did and Doc does to this day. That's the, the biggest lesson I got from him was preparation. But then I learned things from you know pe- other people throughout the course of my career. Uh, Tom McVie, who was the coach of the Maine Mariners, taught me about hard work and you know be the hardest working man in the room and uh, you know all these little sayings he'd have. You know if you look like you're going someplace, you probably are. And things like that, and and carrying yourself professionally, uh, you know, I'd like to think that it's worked out that way throughout the course of my career. But I I have to admit I was probably set on the right path by some really good mentors and teachers early on in, in the process. So you think that acquiring mentors and just reaching out to people and gathering their perspectives is something that's good to have? Oh gosh, yeah, yeah, and and it it, it even goes back to my college days, at least to this degree. As the dean at, at Bowdoin said to me, you know, the most important thing here is to learn how to learn. And, uh, and, and you know, that's what Bowdoin taught me was to learn how to learn and, and to be voracious and, and want to get as much information as you can and how to research things and how to, how to input things. And, uh, you know, you go back to that. And, and the variety of people that you reach out to throughout the course of your life and the variety of people who help set you on the right path is an amazing thing to think about in your life. I bet, you know, if you went and thought back to it, you know, teachers or coaches or mentors or parents, you know, all of whom helped get you to where you are today and all of whom probably have valuable lessons to get you to go even further. Oh, very much so. I can definitely think of quite a few names off of my list of people who have sure. kind of helped me and shaped me where I am. Um, I, I used to do broadcasting when I was at my undergraduate um, and, I used to kind of watch from afar, and I, list, I love listening to Doc Emmerich and Dave Strader, may he rest in peace, 
Um, and Another I remember great Chris- friend of mine. Uh, David was a great friend of mine in our American League days. I was with the Maine Mariners. He was with the Adirondack Red Wings. Uh, we both ended up going to the National Hockey League at approximately the same time. I knew David, you know, from our minor league days up until the very end. An unbelievable voice and an unbelievable character just in general. I wish he were still here because I, do too. I can imagine the broadcasting that he'd be doing. But I remember the first time I met Doc, I was covering a morning skate between the uh, before the game between the Bruins and the Penguins on like a Wednesday night rivalry a few years ago. And I just went up and introduced myself and Doc went off about all of his experiences at uh, the school that I went to undergrad with every time he broadcasted there and rattled off some fun facts and just, Having people, even one moment like that where you make a connection, that makes a big difference. Absolutely. And I imagine if you saw him at a morning skate, he had a notebook and a pen, and he was talking to everybody and, and making notes. I, I know exactly the experience that you had. <laughs> he very much was. Um, so to kind of transition into another topic, I think something that our listeners and our readers would be interested in hearing about is kind of the culture of Boston sports media and the way it relates to the rest of the United States and how it works. There's just, there's so much hyper focus on every player and every player's performance and the fans feel like they have their own say and the media has their own different perspective than you. Uh, you wrote a chapter called the Boston Bruins and the sports talk radio wars and the battle between WEI and 98.5 the sports hub in your own perspective on it, which I think is fascinating. What's something about the industry that you don't think that the fans might understand just yet? I I, I think that in our town, not only do we have two all-sports radio stations, we have two supremely successful all-sports radio stations, uh, among the most successful in the United States. That doesn't happen in every every market. And, you know, it's not the sort of thing that that can happen in every market. But it, it goes back to the passion people have here, the the uh, the way they they approach their teams their fandom look we eat our young here I mean it, it it can get brutal and tough and you know if they love you they love you forever but if they turn on you you know good luck getting back on their good side and it, it it's a little tougher place here not so much the media I don't think the media is necessarily that rough on athletes in Boston but the fans and with two outlets and their ability to communicate and Twitter and Instagram and all of the other social media platforms, uh, it, David Price found out this is a tough place. And, uh, you know, they turned on him for a long time, and a World Series championship will kind of calm the waters a little bit. But he found out what it's like. He was a big social media platform guy when he first got to town, and then he realized, i got to get heck off there because these people are crazy. And, and you know, they – they tell me what they were saying, and I, I, I think he ultimately had to decide. He had to figure out another way because being, being on Twitter every day and, and seeing what was being directed at him when they didn't like him was a little tough. It makes me think of what you wrote about Hal Gale, that um, playing for the Bruins, that fans would be upset every time he didn't just try and drive someone through the glass or against the boards. And then in Montreal, he'd make a poke check, and everyone in the crowd would cheer for him, and he didn't feel like Bruins fans ever kind of understood or appreciated what he was doing. Yeah, it, it, it's a funny thing because Hal, unfortunately, and Hal was, by the way, a very good player here. Um, but he was six foot seven, and there were certain expectations that Bruins had. If he's that big, if he's that strong, you know, he's got to punish people out there. And and you know, they would see a smaller guy, and I'm just using this as an example. They'd see a PJ Stock, who's you know not much bigger than I am, 
out there, you know, putting his body at risk and, and getting into fights and body writing checks or heart writing checks that his body couldn't cash. And they loved everything about him. And in Hal's case, because he played a bit more cerebral game, not quite as physical as they might like, especially given his size, they let him have it. And in Montreal, perhaps they had a little different set of expectations. Maybe they, they looked at him differently as a player, but it was a, it was a funny thing that he told me about how he felt that he was appreciated differently there than he ever was here. I think this also kind of serves as a good transition point for, um, the era of hockey that Hal Gale played in versus the era of hockey that we live in now where forwards are getting much faster and much craftier and defensemen are getting smaller where guys like Tory Krug and Matt Grizzly can thrive based off of their three-book type play. But yet the season has been so marred with injury. Um, I would be intrigued to hear your thoughts on the Bruins' performance so far. Are they overperforming based on the injuries? Are they underperforming based on the personal votes they should have? Well, what are your feelings on how the season is going so far? I think they've been treading water, uh, treading water simply because of the injury situation. But frankly, even when Patrice Bergeron was was healthy, they were a one-line hockey team. Uh, They had a a number of forwards who were underperforming, especially the young guys who had come so far last year. Jake DeBrusque was one of those guys who had kind of turned it around a little bit, and then he recently got hurt as well. But you know, they, they hadn't seen much from Heinen. They hadn't seen much from Forsbacher Carlson and some guys like that up front. They're starting to see it now, and you're starting to get more production, more secondary scoring. But the idea that, you know, Patrice Bergeron's going to return and everything's going to be, be fixed here, I think, is kind of a false notion because when he was healthy, they were a one-line team. There will be a big difference here when you get Chara and Miller back. I think the Bruins have been getting run pretty good here the last few weeks. Uh, there is the lack of a fear factor, and and some of the Bruins' smaller forwards, uh, you know, guys like Krejci and Pasternak and and Marchand, have been getting roughed up pretty good because you don't have that snarl factor sitting over on the bench. Now, interestingly, when last I checked a week or so ago, the Bruins actually led the National Hockey League in fighting majors. The problem is they didn't have the right people fighting. As Don Cherry told me a couple of weeks ago, he said, Brad Marchand can't be dropping the sticks and the stick and gloves and be fighting. You love the fact that he's sticking up for teammates and willing to do it, but you don't want him to do it. And, and I think when you get Chara and Kevin Miller back and they're now both skating again, there's that, that little fear factor in the, in the minds of opposing players. If I do run Pasternak here, I'm probably going to have to answer for it. And I think that's the biggest factor when you get the injured guys back that I think will change pretty much uh, for this team going forward. Um, I happened to be watching NBC Sports last night, Wednesday night rivalry between the Penguins and Blackhawks. And coming into the third period, Doc did a whole spot about the Bruins pup calendar. And the last um, photo was of Brad Marchand. And uh, he said, Brad leads the league in penalty minutes, but he could also lead the league in goals. So I definitely don't disagree with you there that, it's an, it's almost an evolution of the big bad Bruins theory that there's not as much dropping the gloves now, but there's still an element of a threat behind you that allows the skill to come forward. You just have to know that if, if you take a run at, at one of the Bruins' skill position players, either A, you're going to have to answer for it, or B, one of your smaller skill position players are going to get run at. And And generally what happens is, you know, pick whatever team you want. Let's let's say Chicago. You know, if if Jonathan Caves says to you know some guy on his team, listen, 
I'm the guy who's paying the price. If you go take a shot at Pasternak, cut the crap. And, and I think that's the sort of thing that the Bruins need to have back, and they will get back. I think they'd still be in the market. Cam Neely has said they'd like to get a, a power forward type. I don't think they'd mind getting that. But I think that you know just the, the reinsertion of Chara and Miller into the lineup helps add to that. Um, another interesting kind of thing we've noticed about the lineup so far is the goaltending situation between Tuka Rask and Yaro Halak. And fans alike have called for a goalie controversy that Yaro should be starting more games or that Tuka isn't necessarily living up to his uh, play again. Do you see there being a goalie controversy at all? No, I don't. Um, and, and, you know, Yaroslav Halak has been a godsend. He's been a real revelation here. Uh, and, and for the first time, really, I think in Tuka Rask's career as a starting goaltender for the Bruins, he's got legitimate competition. I think some of the people who've been here in the past, Anton Hudobin and Chad Johnson and, and whoever, uh, Tuka Rask knew that they, they were no competition to take over the starting position from him because they just weren't. Halak gives that, comp- that competitive factor. But I also think that since Tuka took the three or four days off that he did to deal with it, with whatever personal issues he had to deal with, he's been a different guy. Uh, he's been really good for the last couple of weeks. Save percentages up. Goals, uh, goals against average is down. Halak, on the other hand, is good. At, on home ice, he's great. He's like 6-0-0 at, at home and, and, you know, goals against below two. On the road, he's pretty pedestrian. And, uh, and, you know, I think they love the fact that they've got them both. And with a condensed schedule in the NHL, you really have to be able to play two guys. Uh, and they never wanted Tuca to play 60, 70 games anyway. Pollock gives them the perfect backup component here. He's really good most nights when he goes in there, especially at home. Uh, in my mind, Tuka Rask is still the starting goaltender, and Yaroslav Pollock is the backup. I think that's great to have such a definitive answer because I could go scrolling through all the comments on every single article about Goldsing on our website and find a multitude of things that people say disparaging Tuka or trying to prop up Yara more than he needs to. Not that Yara hasn't bad, as you said, but I think it's great to have a, just a definitive answer from someone saying this is what the real situation is and be able to relay that to fans. Well, I think, I think he's been great, and I think they like him a lot, uh, but – I don't think he has supplanted Rask as the as the number one goaltender here. Awesome. Uh, that's good to hear. So the book is out. You can get it in a few different places. Uh, where else do you take it from here? Well, I, uh, I, I've got a few more book signings left. Uh, Saturday, this coming Saturday the 15th, is one of the thrills of my life, is that uh, I'm going to do a book signing back in my hometown in Brunswick, Maine. Um, and and see you know high school friends and college friends and uh, you know to be able to go to a book signing in my hometown with the people that I grew up with is surreal to me. Uh, I've got a couple more book signings before the holidays and you know we'll see after the first of the year. Hopefully people keep buying the book. Um, thankfully, the people who have read it so far and you were nice enough to read it have told me that they've liked it and that that they've enjoyed reading some of the stories and. Uh, if I get a chance, hopefully I can write another one. I think everyone would enjoy that, especially me having read it. Um, I think it's a great Christmas gift for anyone who's looking for it, a great summer read for someone who wants to just feel connected to the Bruins in the off season. a great coffee table book. I think it's something that's so versatile and everyone can use. Well, Triumph Books did a terrific job in packaging it, as they do with all of their stuff. You know, it, it looks good. 
Uh, you know, it, it, it's got a nice sharp cover with Brad Marchand on the front and Zdeno Char on the back. And, uh, you know, they've laid it out nicely. As I said, so far, knock wood, uh, the reaction's been positive, and I hope people continue to, to buy it, read it, and like it. Well, we certainly hope the same for you. We, I really thank you for taking the time out of your day to do an interview. It was my pleasure. I appreciate. Uh, first of all, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me, but I really appreciate that you took the time to read the book beforehand. That made it even more fun. With that, we wanted to thank our special guest, Dale Arnold, uh, for joining us today to talk a little bit of Bruins. And as we mentioned, if you're looking for a great uh, holiday gift or, you know, a, a tabletop book or just something for you to read, if you want to learn a little bit more about what it's like to be in the locker room or around, you know, some of your favorite players, highly recommend picking up Dale's book, If These Walls Could Talk, Boston Bruins. It's available on Amazon, at your local bookstore, and pretty much anywhere books are sold. Thanks again for joining us, Dale. And thanks again as well, Jake and Sean, for another great episode. For our listeners, you can follow Jake at, at Jake Riser. You can follow Sean at the Sean Ferris on Twitter. And as always, you can follow me at, at C. Beswick and follow us on the page at SB Unsupervised. Um, and speaking of Dale's book as well, we're going to have an opportunity to um, give away a free copy of this book. So take a look at our Twitter feed as well as uh, stay on the cup of chatter.com and find out how you can win a copy of Dale's book. If these walls could talk. Thanks again for joining us, everyone. And look forward to talking to you guys soon. Happy holidays. Take care guys. See ya.